Welcome to the Trinity Baptist Church podcast with Dr. Robert Creech. For more information about our church and to keep up to date with the latest resources, please visit our website at www.trinitybaptist.org. Enjoy the podcast. Well, good morning, Trinity Baptist Church. The Lord is with you. I wonder if you've ever known someone who has lost their faith. Sometimes that's the way we put it. They were once a practicing Christian and going to church and practicing their faith. And for one reason or another, at some point in their life, they walked away from that. You know anybody who's done that? It could have been for a lot of reasons. It might have been that they had a set of expectations about how God was going to work in their life and what God would do in their life and wouldn't do. And their life was pounded by some kind of traumatic experience and God didn't seem to be there to protect them from it or uh, shield them from the suffering, the pain or the loss. And they walked away from faith. Or maybe you know somebody whose struggle with faith was more an intellectual thing. They they had a faith in God and a way of thinking about God, but they ran into questions and facts in the world that they didn't know how to fit together with that, and they found it easier just to let go of the faith instead of continuing to, to face that, and they walked away from it. One of my dear friends I grew up with in church, who was a, a faithful Christian young man, went to college, and there at college, he studied psychology, and the things he was encountering in psychology and other subjects just didn't seem to fit with the way he had been raised to think about God, and he found it easier to let go of his religion than he did uh, to find a way to incorporate it. Fine man, but he walked away. There was a pastor friend of mine across the city in Houston where I served, and he went through some really hard struggles in his, both in his congregation and his family over time. And over time, he decided that his faith meant nothing, and he walked away from it, even wrote a book about it. How does that happen? I'm sure it's pretty complicated and distinct in each case why people do that. But there is a process that seems to be fairly common. A man named James Fowler wrote a book some years ago called Stages of Faith, it was an important book back then, and it's still cited often in studies about human development. He was interested in how is it as we are human beings grow up that we develop a way of seeing the world. That's what he called our faith, a way of seeing the world. And how does that change over time? And how, how do we grow in that? He called it stages of faith. He said that what happens mostly is that when we're growing up, by the time we're teenagers, we have a pretty firm view of what the world is like, about what we believe is true and not true about the world and how it operates and what's real and what's not real. He called that adolescent faith or stage three faith. Mostly it's an inherited faith. It's been given to us by our parents, our teachers, our church, our culture, and we grow up and we get pretty set in that. He said most people never get past that in their life. They grow up living with the way, believing the world is the way they were taught it is, and they never let go of that. Other people 
get out into the world. They go to college or they enlist in the military or they travel to some places and they begin to find that not everybody thinks that the same way they think about the world. People have different religions and religions see things differently or they encounter ideas and there are university studies that they'd never run into before. And some of these ideas seem to run into conflict with the way they've been taught about how the world is and it presents a real crisis for them. What they often do during times like that is uh, they start to take their faith apart the way they see the world. And they've never really looked at all the pieces laid out there before and put it back together, but they kind of do that. And it sometimes takes years as a young adult to sort through all of that. Hopefully they reassemble those parts and put something back together and keep many of the things that they were taught, but find some things they just can't live with anymore and other things they incorporate into that and their faith becomes their own in a way that it never was before. It's not just inherited anymore. It's something they've worked with and put back together. Uh, that's, he calls that stage four faith and it is something that happens usually with young adults. But there are those who never get it put back together. They end up leaving their faith on the table like a thousand-piece jigsaw puzzle, uh, only a few pieces together and not knowing what to do with it all. And they find it easier just to walk away from their faith. And they do that. Uh, they reform their way of seeing the world without including God in that at all and just go out and live their lives in a different way. Let me explain it another way. Uh, what happens to us when someone loses their faith. Let's think about two terms, and I'm going to define it differently than James Fowler did. Just think about our faith on the one hand and our theology on the other hand. Faith, as I'm using that word here, faith means that very real relationship that we have with God through Jesus Christ. We come to place our faith in Jesus. We trust Jesus. And a relationship is developed with him that is very real and very vital. That's our faith. It's something God does. It is, it is a gift of grace. It's not something we do. Theology, on the other hand, just means what you get when you start talking about your faith or thinking about your faith or make, trying to make sense of your faith. When we talk about God and what we believe about God and we talk about Jesus or the Christian life or the world, that's, called, that's just theology. It's not some strange discipline out there. It's what all of us do when we try to understand our relationship with God. It's our theology. Now, theology is inherently a human activity. It's what we do. We may do it with others. We may talk about it, but it is always a human activity. That means it's always open to correction. It's never finalized. It's never complete. And uh, we get these ideas in our heads. They may be good ones or they may be wrong ones. They may be in line with what Scripture teaches or not. C.S. Lewis said that God is like a, a, the great iconoclast, the one who crash, smashes idols. He said, every time I get in my head a way of thinking that God is like this, God comes along and smashes that idol and says, not like that. Uh, it's, there's always more, always more. Finite brains like ours cannot fully comprehend the infinite God. That's like trying to pour the Gulf of Mexico into a thimble. It's just not going to work. And so our theology is human, and we have to learn to keep it open to revision. 
It's possible to have a very real solid faith or an authentic faith in God, a real relationship, but have really bad theology about that. We don't think clearly about it. It's not grounded fully in scripture. It's ideas we picked up around here or there. It doesn't reflect how God has made himself known in Jesus. And you could have a very solid, real relationship with God and very bad theology. On the other hand, you could have a very good theology that's consistent with scripture and consistent within itself. It's easy to think through. It makes sense, but no relationship with Jesus Christ. Theology and what we believe doesn't give us the relationship. So ideally, what we want to have is a very active, vital, authentic faith and a very thoughtful, sound, biblically faithful theology. That's the goal. But the theology is always a work in progress. It's never finished. It's always something that allows us to revise as we grow in Christ, as God reveals himself further to us through Jesus and through Scripture. We run into problems. This is where this is all going. We run into problems when our faith in Jesus, our real relationship, and our theology, the way we think about God, are so fused together that If our theology gets called into question, we question our faith in Jesus, whether that's real. You follow? If something challenges the way we think about Jesus, we may be willing to walk away from the relationship. And that's what happens when someone loses their faith. The two things have become so fused, and that's a problem. Uh, The problem was never our faith. It was our brittle, calcified, frozen theology that thinks we have it all figured out and we know all the answers. And when we run into things that challenge those answers, we walk away from the whole thing. I sometimes hear someone say something like this, somebody who has walked away from faith or maybe never made it all the way there. They'll say something like, well, I could never believe in a God who, and they fill in the blank with some ridiculous thing. A God who makes people do, yeah, I could never believe in it. Well, neither could I. Your problem is you got a really bad theology there. You need to think further about what God is like. How is he revealed in scripture? How is he revealed in Jesus? That's going to tell us what God's like, not cultural ideas about God. It becomes an excuse not to believe. I want to tell you that doubts, doubting, raising questions about our faith, and about our theology. That is a normal part of the journey of faith. To have questions is a normal part of the journey of faith. Uh, those questions and doubts sometimes knock at the door of our minds when the reality of life as we're living it and facing it doesn't match up with the expectations that we had going in. We had a way of thinking about God, and when life doesn't match up with that, something seems to contradict it. Those questions arise, the doubts can come, and it's not, a, it's not abnormal. It's a normal part of the journey of faith. So we can develop our way of thinking about God and how God should treat people who are his followers. And then when the traumatic events of life hit us that contradict that, we've got to find a way to revise our understanding of God and God's ways rather than walking away. That's the trick, and it's difficult to do. Or we might live with a really immature theology, and then when we run into the facts of history or science or other things, if we don't have a way to pull those things together, we can find ourselves letting go of our faith altogether. The problem is that we don't often leave room in our room for our thinking about God, our theology. 
to be revised and allowing God to shatter the images that we make of him. We identify the two too closely, and when we do, we're in danger of losing both. When we find that the ways we've thought about God, the ways we've tried to explain our belief in God, run up against stronger truths in life and reality that challenge those concepts, it can feel like doubt, and we can fear that we're losing our faith. So John the Baptist comes up as an example of somebody who takes the broken pieces of his own theology and brings those shattered pieces to Jesus in faith and asks him to help with those. It's a, a return to Jesus to get put back together things that have fallen apart. So we're in the season of Advent and uh, the second and the third week of Advent, the traditional passages of Scripture from the Gospels that the church reads and reflects on are about John the Baptist. Last week, Karen presented us to John the Baptist's ministry as he stood out in the wilderness and preached repentance and called people to be baptized. And this week, uh, the passages in Matthew 11 where John's in prison and having his doubts. Was he right about Jesus or not? Both of John's parents were priests, uh, they were uh, from priestly families, uh, Zacharias and Elizabeth. Zacharias was in the temple performing priestly duties when the angel Gabriel appeared and made an announcement to him that he and Elizabeth in their old age were going to have a baby. They had been childless all this time and they wanted a child, but here they were and Gabriel says, you and Elizabeth are going to have a child, a boy, and Medicare is going to pick up the bill. And John surely heard that story as he was growing up. His parents must have told him that. When he grew up, he felt a call of God on his life to speak to the people of Israel. He went out into the wilderness for solitude and encounter with God and then finally made his appearance there in the wilderness preaching this message of repentance and saying, the kingdom of heaven is right here. It's at hand. It's about to break in. It's about to happen, and you need to prepare yourself for it. So repent, turn from your sins, turn to God, and be baptized as a symbol and sign of that. One day he was baptizing people out there, and Jesus of Nazareth came up, and John tells his disciples, over there, that's the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He comes after me. He's greater than I am. I'm not worthy to bend down and pick up take his sandals off his feet and carry them for him. He is the one who is to come. John proclaimed that. He baptized Jesus. He saw the heavens open. He saw the Spirit descend upon Jesus. He heard the voice from heaven. John had experienced all of that. But John understood what the kingdom of God was about in the same way his culture understood it, which was something like this. That when the Messiah comes, he comes as the son of David. He'll come with a sword in his hand. He will come violently to overthrow the oppressors. He's going to leave bodies of Roman soldiers strewn along the roads like the Romans had left Jewish bodies when they came in to conquer. He's going to overthrow these oppressors. He's going to set up his throne in Jerusalem. He's going to make us the center of the world. He's going to rule and reign over the entire world, and we are going to be part of that. That's how John must have understood his own message he was preaching. Repent, the kingdom of God is at hand. That's the way it was widely understood in his world, some version of that. But that didn't happen. 
John was arrested by Herod, one of these worldly leaders, and put into a prison in Machaerus, a fortress of Herod's there on the Dead Sea, and he was beginning to waste away in prison. It stretched into weeks and then into months, and there were no rumors afoot about the Messiah gathering an army. In fact, he was hearing that opposition was rising against Jesus. Nothing Jesus was doing or reported to do sounded anything like what he and other faithful Jews were expecting to happen when the Messiah came. It looked more and more like Jesus of Nazareth might not be the one that he had expected, the coming one. How could Jesus be the Messiah? And how could John be his prophetic herald if Jesus is being opposed and John is languishing away in a Roman prison? John had not come to full despair and disappointment yet, but if he looked out his prison window, he could see the city limits from there. It was close. John's doubts about Jesus grew deeper. He understood that if something didn't happen soon, his own life was in jeopardy, and that's when he took action. He conscripted a couple of his disciples. Luke says he got two of them, and he brought them to him. And Matthew 11, 2 and 3 says this, When John heard in prison what the Messiah was doing, he sent word by his disciples and said to him, are you the one who is to come or are we to wait for another? John told them, I want you to go to find Jesus and tell him who you are. We are disciples of John the baptizer. Ask him directly, look in his eyes and say, John wants to know, are you the one who is to come or do we expect another? And you wait for his answer. Ask him. This is an important move for John. John's expectations were crushed, and he needed to know what was real. His dis disappointment was devastating. His doubts were real. But here's the key thing. He, in this move, he took his doubts to Jesus. His theology was crumbling, but his faith was still intact. And he took those doubts to Jesus and said, help me understand what's going on. It probably wasn't difficult for those disciples to find Jesus. He was a public figure at this time. Everywhere he went in Galilee, he was followed by huge crowds, and this was probably no different at this time. The problem was going to be getting a private audience with him. So I imagine that when they got to the place where Jesus was preaching and teaching, they had to stand aside for a while while this was all going on. And they watched, and they just saw some marvelous, mind-boggling things taking place right before their eyes. A couple of blind men were brought forward and Jesus touched their eyes and they could see again. There were lepers that Jesus touched and they were made clean and whole. There were deaf men and women where he touched their ears and they could hear again for the first time or the first time in a long time in their life. There were even crippled that were pe people that were crippled that were brought and they stood up after Jesus touched and walked on their own power. And there was at least one person who was brought to Jesus and was so ill they didn't make it all the way and they died and Jesus spoke a word and they were brought back to life, restored to life and to their loved ones again. All of this happening just a few yards away from these disciples of John. They were seeing it with their own eyes. And sandwiched in between these miracles was some teaching like they had never heard before. Jesus was talking about the kingdom of God. And he said the kingdom of God is like 
It's like yeast or leaven that a woman puts into a loaf of bread and needs it and leaves it to proof and rise. And that leaven, that little tiny bit of leaven permeates the whole loaf until it rises up. Or he said the kingdom of heaven is like a seed, like a mustard seed, a little tiny seed that is put into the ground and it's so powerful it breaks the earth and grows into a tree. It grows into something large enough for the birds to roost in, he said. The kingdom of God is so valuable. He said, it's like a treasure hidden in a field and it would be worth selling everything you had in order to purchase that land and have the treasure that is the kingdom of God. On and on, he talked about the kingdom in ways they had never heard before. These miracles were taking place before their eyes and these teachings were puzzling and fascinating. And finally, they make their way up to the front and they get Jesus' attention and they practice their, they deliver their well-rehearsed question. We are disciples of John the baptizer. John sent us and he wants to know this. Are you the one who is to come or do we wait for another? Jesus looks at them and he doesn't rebuke their doubts or John's doubts. He knew how real and honest they were. And his answer makes it clear to me at least that honest questions were all right with him as long as you didn't give up seeking answers. And so Jesus' response was simple. This is Matthew eleven four through 6. Go and tell John what you are hearing and seeing. The blind receive their sight. The lame walk. The lepers are cleansed. The deaf hear. The dead are raised. And the poor have good news brought to them. And blessed is anyone who takes no offense at me. Jesus' answer to John was a kind of coded message. He knew John would understand Jesus is alluding to very directly, you might say he's clicking on a hyperlink to Isaiah 35. Isaiah 35 is a passage that describes that great day of the Lord when the kingdom comes in its fullness. I'm going to read it to you in a bit, but I want you to hear it with your imagination. The previous chapter described God's judgment on Israel and the world is devastated and desert and empty and overrun. And God comes to make things right. God comes to make things whole. This is the promised kingdom of God. This is what John was hoping was about to burst into being right here in history. And Jesus says to John, go, his disciples, go tell John, the blind receive their sight, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the poor have the gospel preached to them. And here's Isaiah 35 written 700 years earlier. It's kind of lengthy, but... Just follow as we read. The wilderness and the dry land shall be glad. The desert shall rejoice and blossom. Like the crocus, it shall blossom abundantly and rejoice with joy and singing. They shall see the glory of the Lord, the majesty of our God. Strengthen the weak hands and make firm the feeble knees. Say to those who are of a fearful heart, be strong, do not fear. Here is your God. He will come with vengeance, with terrible recompense. He will come and save you. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then the lame shall leap like a deer and the tongue of the speechless sing for joy. For water shall break forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. The burning sand shall become a pool and the thirsty ground springs of water. The haunt of jackals shall be, become a swamp. The grass shall become reeds and rushes. A highway shall be there. It shall be called the holy way. The unclean shall not travel on it, but it shall be for God's people. No traveler, not even fool, shall go astray. No lion shall be there. 
nor shall any ravenous beast come upon it. They shall not be found there, but the redeemed shall walk there, and the ransom of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with singing. Everlasting joy shall be upon their heads, and they shall obtain joy and gladness, and sorrow and sighing shall flee away. That, that beautiful passage from the prophet just says, the day is coming, says the Lord, when it's all going to be all right. It's all going to be changed. The world's going to be set at right. And the signs of that are the blind seeing, the deaf hearing, the lame walking, the mute speaking, and the good news preached to the poor. And Jesus said, you could tell John that's what's going on. Now, Jesus at that time was not healing all the blind or giving strength to all the lame. But each of these is a foretaste of that which is to come. The day when there will be no more sorrow, no more sadness, no more pain, no more death, no more disease, no more injury. Every blind person he healed is a reminder that one day all the blind will see. And every dead person he restored to life is a reminder that one day all the dead shall be raised. It was a foretaste. It was the first gleam of dawn coming up over the edge of the horizon that said noon is coming soon and all of the darkness will be driven away. Jesus says to John, disciples, go tell him that. See what he says. Well, Matthew's story ends there. Those two go away. They return to their teacher. Jesus turns to the crowd to talk to them about John a little more. But we readers are not privy to the conversation between John's disciples and their master when he, they get back to the prison. So we get to imagine it. I do. The journey from expectation to disappointment and despair is often a short journey and a very direct one for most of us. Expectation followed by disappointment leading to despair. But I think we have reason to believe that John never arrived at that dark destination, but that instead he took the exit to hope that Jesus offered him. I imagine that when these two students of John came with their testimony of what they had witnessed and what they had heard Jesus say, and Jesus' response to John's question, that John's doubts began to dissipate like fog in the morning. It just went away. He could settle in. He didn't know what was going to come next. In fact, things did not end well for John, at least as far as this world's concerned. Herod had him beheaded shortly after this. But his hope returned. John's faith was confirmed. Jesus is the promised one, the one who was to come. John's own deaf ears could now hear more clearly the sound of the carols of the kingdom. His own darkened eyes were opened as if for the first time to view the ways that God's kingdom was really dawning upon the world in Jesus. It's like he'd been crippled in his understanding of what the kingdom would be. He had limped along with superficial understandings and expectations, and now suddenly he had the strength to leap for joy, even when the circumstances seemed to contradict his hope. Something dead like his own spirit was called to life, and John became aware of the reality of God's presence like he'd never imagined. So no matter how the circumstances turned out, John felt certain that God's own kingdom would eventually replace the wicked rule of Herod and Caesar and other kings on this earth. Eventually, God's rule would change absolutely everything. Meanwhile, it was enough to be part of the kingdom conspiracy and to know you're doing your part and to wait expectantly. The journey from expectation to disappointment and despair often is short and direct. For us, we believe things are and should be a certain way in the lives of those who follow Jesus Christ. And when things wash up on our lives that contradict that, we don't know what to do with it. And it's a short trip to make to despair.
what we need to do is to revise our understanding of God and of ourselves, and to find a way to take that exit to hope. On the other hand, the journey from disappointment to assurance, that process of revising our thinking and learning to see the world differently can sometimes take a while, and it's not always an easy journey, but it's important that when those times come, and we're working on that, that we act wisely. I want to suggest some things that are important to that process. They, they're rooted in John's story. One is to remember when the doubts come that doubt itself is not a sin. Unbelief is. Unbelief is a will thing where we say, I will not have God in my life. I don't even want responses to my questions. I don't even want to believe. I will not have God. That's one thing. Doubt is the questions that are honest. They're, they rise in our life in honest ways and uh, they challenge us and they're difficult. And we want to believe, but we don't know how. That's doubt. And the psalmist who wrote many of the psalms, the prophets like Jeremiah and others, Habakkuk, uh, the, the apostles like Thomas, these are people who struggled with such doubts. Doubt is not sin. Uh, doubt is a part of the process. Second is when you find those kind of questions raised up in your life by circumstances or other things, take the doubt to God. This is an act of faith. This is what John does. Go find Jesus and ask him. I need to know, are you the one who is to come or another? It's not making sense to me. I need help putting this back together. I need to rethink what's going on. Take the doubt to God. That is itself an act of faith. Even when we can't think clearly about it all, faith is that real relationship and exercise that. Take the doubt to God. The psalmist does that all the time. You'll read the psalms and you hear them just crying out in complaint. Where is God when I need him? Why isn't God acting? Why isn't God doing what I need done right now? But he's praying that to God. Jesus from the cross. My God, my God. Why have you forsaken me? He takes that sense of forsakenness to God. It is an act of faith. It is an act of prayer. Third thing is stay connected to people of faith. This is no time to go it on your own. Stay connected in relationship with your church, with the people in your life who are trying to live out the faith. Even if it doesn't all make sense to you right now, don't get disconnect from the relationships. You're going to need these folks. Stay connected. And if possible, fourth thing is find someone who can listen to your questions and look for answers with you without feeling threatened by your doubts. Sometimes if you express your questions about faith to certain other Christians, they may either come down as condemning that or they may come down as threatened by that or they try to fix you or give you easy answers. You don't want any of that. You'd think church would be a good place to have doubts. It's not. It's not always safe in church. But you need some safe person where you can say, I've got questions. A person who's not threatened by your questions, who themselves understand that doubt's part of the process, who themselves have worked through some things. Not to give you all the answers, but to sit with you, listen, and think with you while you struggle through those dark places. Just don't keep them to yourself. Find somebody you can talk to about your doubts and questions. And realize you're not the first. We always like to think we're the first. We're unique. Nobody else has ever felt like I do or had questions like I do, but Christianity has been around for 2,000 years. All the questions have already been asked. You don't have any new questions. 
Somebody's already asked that question. Smart, faithful people have worked through those questions. And if you can, find their testimony, whether they wrote 500 years ago or 1,000 years ago or last week. Find their testimony. These people have walked through those dark places, and it's helpful to get their testimony and their help as you, as you work through it yourself. And the last thing is this. Learn to hold your theology lightly and your faith tightly. Hold your faith tightly, your theology lightly. And there's some core things in our theology about who God is and, and all of that that don't change. But there's a lot of stuff here that we've been taught or that we've concluded on our own that just need to be held so lightly because life will revise those things. God will revise those things if we allow God to do so. Hold your faith tightly, that relationship. Hold the theology lightly. It'll be a little easier going through those times if you do. You may make your journey with God through this life and never have a single question or doubt ever. I suppose that's possible. But if you're one of those people who sometimes struggle with things like that, you're in excellent company. David hiding away in a cave, writing his questioning psalms. Jeremiah in Jerusalem, Habakkuk standing up on a hill. John in a prison cell, Jesus in the garden and on the cross, Thomas in the upper room, all those saints and heroes offer you their testimony. There is an exit to hope. Take the exit. God offers it to us. Let's pray together. And so, Lord, um, we come to you with all of these things this morning. There are some in this room who are struggling right now with questions and they've been struggling with them and they're hard and they're still hanging on, but sometimes it feels like only by a thread. There are people outside this room that some in this room dearly love who have walked away from their faith because of one thing or another and we care about them. We pray that um, we could hear John's story and testimony as a way of helping us understand to bring our doubts to you and to trust you with them and to find the hope that you offer to us. Help us, God, as we have to revise occasionally how we think about you and talk about you to fit what reality is as we come to know it. And so, Lord, we lift up those in here and those outside here and pray that you would be at work in their lives. In Jesus' name, amen. We hope you enjoyed your segment of the Trinity Baptist Church podcast with Dr. Robert Creech. Join us next week for another segment. For more information about our church, please visit our website at trinitybaptist.org.